Yeah, I mean, the the majority of people have kinks. Very, you're actually in the minority. You are the weird ones for not having a kink. You're, you know what I mean? Like, no, you're not weird, but you know what I mean? But just like, I just want to normalize how common kinks are. And Justin Laymiller uh, studies kinks and fetishes, and he has a PhD at, and he works at the Kinsey Institute. And he's a great uh, resource for like looking at the actual like prevalence of certain kinks. Um, and he has a bunch of research on it. And when you speak to him, what he'll say is what's so important just for these data and numbers is to show that how truly common this is and how like you might think that like you have a fetish for uh, dirt and, and you can only come when there's like somehow like dirt involved. And it's like, OK, you and thousands of other people have this like like I think it's recognizing that you are really not alone in any weird thing that you are thinking. Hi, how are you? Hope you're doing well. Dave here and Steve here. Welcome to Happy Bear Podcast, where we explore our curiosities to try to learn how to live a happier, healthier, more meaningful life. I like that one. Come on, Steve. I like it. Good one. Okay, welcome. So this is an episode in our sex and relationship series. I did say the word sex. Yes, I'm becoming much more comfortable talking about it. It's wonderful. So today we've got a very wonderful conversation. We talked with Zachary Zane. He is a sexpert, a psychologist, and a columnist that writes about sex and relationships in men's health in America. He's also recently authored a book titled uh, The Best Sex You Can Ever Have. No, sorry, I'm saying that one wrong. It's titled Best Sex Ever, published by with Men's Health. So, remarkable character that really... He's, he identifies as bisexual. He really blo- broke down so much of the glossary of the terms because at least myself and Dave felt kind of slightly uncomfortable not knowing what these terms were. I felt slightly ignorant going, can you tell us what pansexual is? I feel rude that I don't know what it is, but, and I feel a little awkward even asking. However, I'm sure many people feel the same as me. So he really held our kind of, went through this with us and kind of broke down the terms. Yeah, we talked about monogamy, about ethical non-monogamy, about polyamor versus open relationships, about safety, about jealousy. We talked about fetishes, which I felt slightly awkward, but I really appreciated digging into. But there was many times just conversation where I felt a little bit prudish, which is great. But the whole tone of it and the theme of it is about sex positivity and how we can be more honest and open and supporting about it. So wonderful conversation. He's a great ambassador, very curious, open, puppy dog energy. You're going to really, really enjoy this one. I hope you get it. So uh, yeah. Before we start, the average person spends over 70 euro a month on things like gym memberships, supplements, meditation, yoga. I'm sure you can empathize. It's very common. There's so much information out there as well on the internet and it's so easy to get lost or misguided or feel confused and not supported. Research shows that success rates increase when you've got community support and you've got social accountability. And I guess this has been an area we've absolutely focused on. Over the last 10 years, we've helped over 50,000 people through our online courses with doctors, psychologists and other experts to create courses that really deliver concise and tangible and practical information that really help you transform your life and your health. So whether you want to improve your heart health, your good health, your skin, your shape, or just learning how to cook delicious vegan dishes, we've got the course for you. They really, really do work. We've got meal plans, doctors coaching, yoga, meditation, live Q&As, hundreds of recipes, and so much more. Black Friday's coming up. 
It's starting, we've got a sale starting Sunday, November the 21st, where we're doing 66% all of all our online courses. That means they're only going to be 50 euro each. We're going to run this for a very short period of time. You're going to have three months access. So it means that you can start it in January if you want. So you don't have to start immediately. They get fantastic results. So please do check them out. Okay, without further ado, here is this week's podcast. Thank you for your time and attention. Uh, so where I'm Steve and this is Dave. Uh, we're here in Ireland. And we're, we're delighted, delighted to be doing this with you genuinely. So thanks a million for making the time. We really, really appreciate it. And yeah, love what you're I'm doing. I, I love your your message of sex positivity. I think it's so, so, so important. And your curiosity is beautiful. I, I imagine it's quite frightening. Like even just listening to some to people. Some, to some people, even to me when I was listening, I was like, wow, jeez, you're, you're, you're really very curious, getting man. stuck in. It's magic. Yeah. Uh, yeah, no, I feel like I'm very candid, uh, for sure. I'm very honest, and everyone loves to overuse the word authentic, but I do my best to be as authentic as possible here. Yeah, well done. Okay, so, so maybe maybe let's start with uh, so so you're you write columns on sex. You represent so many different things. As we were saying, we greatly admire your curiosity and your openness and being a, a shining light for sex positivity. So like with, with kind of writing a column in terms of like being a sexpert, what are some of the more common issues or some more, some of the more common things which are asked? Yeah. I mean, so the most, I mean, I write the sex and relationship advice column at Men's Health. It's called Sex Explain It. And because it's Men's Health, I often get a lot of like, um, have trouble getting an erection, have trouble orgasming or premature ejaculation. I feel like that's honestly some of the most common things. Um, but beyond that, I think it's a lot of bit of like penis insecurity for guys thinking that their penis is small a lot of just performance anxiety and fear that they're not good at sex, that this person's not into them. And then also a lot of shame for like embracing uh, elements of their sexuality, whether it means shame for being gay or bisexual or shame for having a particular kink and not know not knowing how to express that. And then I'm trying to think what else is common. A lot of uh, jealousy issues. A lot of people who um, struggle yeah, with their partner, um, you know, talking to other people, liking other people, jealousy with ethical non-monogamy, je jealousy with polyamory and open relationships, and how to navigate, like, am I valid for being jealous or upset because they did this? Or, like, how do I respond to these feelings of insecurity or these feelings of worry that I have because my partner is doing something? So I'd say between those, that covers probably, like, 80, 90 percent of it. Well, well, you just mentioned like so many things there that I'm kind of going, <laughs> oh my goodness, we're five minutes in and I've already got like enough questions to last two hours. Uh, <laughs> one thing that came straight to me was I was listening to an interview you did earlier and you were talking about the opposite of jealousy being a word called compurgence, I believe it was. And I was like, wow, what a cool word. I've never heard of that. I've never even thought of like, what's the direct like night and day? What's the direct like the opposite of jealousy? And, you know, it kind of linked in with the kind of the concept of an open relationship of polyamor, of this sense of non-binary monogamous relationship. I'm just wondering if you could talk about compurgence and the difference between non like a an open relation, a polygamous relationship, or a polyamor relationship, and a non-binary, ethical, ethical, monogamous. Non -monogamous. Uh, so, so, uh, excuse sorry. me, I'm yeah, butchered, but I was doing good for a minute. No, no, no. I mean, it's a lot of terms. It's definitely. I feel like polyamorous people really love terms and labels all the time for everything. Um, 
But so compersion is this idea of, it initially kind of started of just like taking pleasure and watching your partner have like sexual pleasure with someone else. So it's like you have joy for them. You love that they're enjoying this experience, that they're in a date with someone and they're happy and their happiness and their joy and their sexual satisfaction brings you happiness and joy. But it doesn't necessarily need to always pertain to just like your partner having sex with someone or a date with someone. I think I like the idea of expanding it to everything. Every time your partner experiences joy, happiness, all of that's a pleasure, you, you should be happy for them. And, and you should take joy in seeing your partner experience joy. So that's the idea of compersion as opposed to, you know, jealousy. You see your partner with someone else, you get jealous. Um, so that's kind of like the opposite there. And I really don't think, again, even though it's like a polyamorous, a poly people also love claiming things that being like, oh, this is like a uniquely polyamorous thing. And I'm like, no, this is just anyone dating in any relationship uh, can definitely use these terms or learn from it. And I think that's definitely part of it where it's just like, you know, if you're monogamous too, you know, uh, being happy and taking joy in your partner's joy, whether it's they're out on a uh, friend date and they're out with their girlfriends or whatever it is, instead of being like, oh, they're not hanging out with me, happy that they're having this time with someone else. Um, and then I can move in a little bit to the labels here, which there are a bunch, uh, and I'll do my best to describe them as succinctly as possible here. So the overarching kind of umbrella term uh for anything that's not monogamous is ethical non-monogamy. And that includes, you know, there are various types of ways that you can be, you know, dating someone, married to someone, have a boyfriend, girlfriend, partner, and still be uh, sleeping with other people, still be dating other people, still experiencing love with other people. So anything that in essence is not monogamy is ethical non-monogamy. And ethical is thrown in there to be like, oh, we're not cheating. My partner knows about this. Like, we're not including cheating in this. That, that's bad. Uh, and you should not be cheating. Um, so that's why the word is ethical, uh, non-monogamy. Wow. It's, it's a really good word because it sounds like, you know, because we we obviously we're in the food business. So like ethically sourced food, like that's what I think of or whatever. And ethical in this context is more like that you're not lying. You're very explicit and saying, hey. I'm attracted to someone else. I know we're in a, a relationship. I'm interested in, you know, I'm curious. Do you mind if I go explore this curiosity and then getting your partner's buy-in? Yeah. And the thing is, I think people often think in ethical non-monogamy, you can't cheat. And it's like, no, you can absolutely cheat because every ethical non-monogamous relationship is different and you have a set of rules. And if you're breaking those rules and lying about it, yeah, that, that's cheating. It's a different form of cheating, but that absolutely is. So ethical non-monogamy does not mean necessarily a free-for-all and you can do whatever the fuck you want with, or I don't know if I'm logic or sorry, whatever yeah, you go. want. You're doing great. You're doing great. Good work, Zach. Uh, uh, whatever you want um, at any moment. But yeah, so that's the larger umbrella term. And then they're kind of, uh, God, there's so many terms here, but I'm there, gonna... there really is. There's so many terms because even, <laughs> even researching this, like uh, even Steve was kind of suggesting and we were having lunch earlier and Harold was saying, well, why don't you like say to Zach, like up front, like, could we just do like a 10 word Q and like quick quiz of kind of terms just so anyone listening, we've kind of covered a few of the terms. So sure. maybe could I do that quickly with you? Because in respect sure. of Harold, in, in respect sure. of kind of things. Yeah. So, so, no. so like, so rapid fire. Okay. So I, I'm going to kind of say a term and you can just define it quickly just because I, sure. I feel really ignorant in this space and i'm really and i'd like to kind of put our foot in a few things first so we can op you know we can open it all up so so okay first one i had was okay maybe just if you can define polyamory and polygamy is there a difference 
Yes, there's definitely a difference. So polyamory, poly just means many, and then amory means love. So it's many loves. Um, so as opposed to an open relationship where you have this one primary partner who you love, and that's your boyfriend, that's your girlfriend, and you're sleeping with other people casually, with polyamory, you're opening the idea of having multiple loves. So you might have a boyfriend and a girlfriend. Um, so open is different from polyamorous. Sorry, excuse my yes. ignorance here. So open, yeah. I, I I have one primary partner and then I'm kind of having lots of little little kind of desserts on the side, but I have this is my main relationship. Whereas polyamor, I'm going to have deep relationships with everyone. Exactly. Not everyone, like Not everyone but the people no, that but we've you, discussed. You can have it with multiple people and it gets confusing where you can be polyamorous but single. And you're like, well, how does that work? And the idea is, okay, I, I believe in polyamory. That's what I want. So when you start having a relationship with one person, you want them to know you're polyamorous because like if they go on thinking you're monogamous and you're not, you start dating this person and the first person you date and then you fall in love with someone else, they may be like, what the heck's going on? So polyamory doesn't necessarily mean you have to be in multiple relationships with multiple people at the same time. It really is more of a mindset that kind of guides you in your relationships. Wow. Okay. Okay. Great. Good definitions there. Okay. Pansexual and asexual. Okay. Pansexual just means you're attracted to all genders. Uh, so you're attracted to, uh, obviously like cisgender people, transgender people, non-binary people, L literally at you, you have the capacity to be, to be potentially attracted to anyone kind of regardless of their genitals and regardless of their gender expression. Brilliant. You said, two more, you said cis, two you said more there. Cis. You said cisgender and you said non-binary. Those are two words that I'd love clarification as well. Sure. So uh, you know what transgender is, which just means you're born, um, let's say you were born with male parts, but then you identify as a female, you'd be a transgender woman, right? And cisgender means your sex coincides with your gender. For example, you are cisgender because you were born men with male parts and you identify as a man and you express and live your life as a man. So like cisgender is kind of the opposite of transgender and that's what you know the majority of people are, right? Uh, Non-binary in essence means you're neither, um, you, you're, you know, you're not transgender or cisgender. Uh, you kind of exist outside of that spectrum of gender. And that can mean that at times you are significantly more masculine. At times you are significantly more feminine, but you don't feel as if, uh, you don't feel as if you are strictly a man or feel as if you are strictly a woman. You are somewhere in between or you are potentially both and all of it. Amazing. Wow. Zach, Great. Thank brilliant. you for that. Great knowledge. Wonderful. Thank you. I love yeah, it. Yeah, for real. Like, uh, like I, I guess this this leads like beautifully can, can into. Even, can, oh, okay, do you want to say something? Just just a tiny little one. I, I remember age twenty one. Grew up in small little town in Ireland. You know, probably quite a Catholic or Protestant kind of small little town. You know, it was very. Um, kind of relation people got married and it was this type of thing that we were kind of largely fed and I remember in Missouri I was on a I was staying in an eco village or staying in a sustainable egalitarian feministic community and I remember there was a couple and they had a kid and we were kind of you know we were all hanging out there was maybe 30 people on the farm and there was a couple who had a kid and they were very much together and then one night there was a girl staying over and she sat down on both their laps and kissed both them and being a little Irish boy I was like did I see that no I shouldn't see that no no I didn't see that no pretend you didn't see that sitting in the corner awkward but at the same time looking over going what are they doing now oh my god this is did I see that you know I I, I didn't 
this wasn't in my upbringing. Whereas I think this is, I really admire the fact that you're kind of, it's just, it's, it's kind of open. It's all becoming so much more. And one question that I had beforehand that I was talking with Sarah was, it's like, I wonder, like, is this kind of a move toward, like, do you reckon that kind of the natural human sexuality is almost this openness because like so much of it is defined by social conditioning whereas if you look at kind of roman times there wasn't like you know you were you were straight you were gay you were one or the other you were just kind of you expressed your sexuality in whatever form it presented itself or, or that's what it is according to history books yeah well yeah exactly or movies anyway but, but i guess i guess the question and that's kind of exactly what i was curious about like there seems to be more like we're 41 now 42 next year next month actually and and I guess over our lifetime certainly over the last decade there seems to be much more openness in terms of exploring one's sexuality and not defining it to one side or the other and it being more you know being it more a curiosity that one can explore have you like could you maybe talk about that sure I mean there are always various waves of like sex sexual freedom sexual revolution you know I feel like we had that in the 60s we started seeing that, you know, push against from these more like heteronormative norms. The, the, uh, heteronormative just kind of means like um, kind of the straight expectations of like, okay, you're a man, you're supposed to be with a woman, you get married, you have kids uh, and that those kind of expectations. Um, and I feel like it comes and kind of goes through waves a little bit where there'll be these sexual revolutions and then you kind of get some pushback from the right, the more conservative, the more religious, and then you go back to a kind of a place of purity. Uh, and then, you know, we fight back against it. So I think it's always kind of going back and forth here. Um, but I think now what's kind of different is, you know, we do have this different language. The younger generation really seems to be more open to it. Um, and I think we're starting to see um yeah, people expressing themselves how they want to and having the relationships that they want to have. And I think one thing I don't like that polyamorous, some, some, some polyamorous people do is they kind of really shit on monogamy. And they'll be like, oh, this is not natural. This is not good. It's because you're jealous. It's because you're insecure. And I don't think that's true. I don't think that's true at all. I, I think there's, uh, I think it was Robin Oaks, who's this big bisexual activist. I think she coined these words, and I do like giving credit where credit is due, but she called it uh, reflexive monogamy and radical monogamy. And in essence, reflexive monogamy is you're monogamous because you are told that monogamy is the only valid form of relationship. You've been brought, you, you know, you've been told that like you should get married to one person, and this is the only type of relationship that's valid. If you're polyamorous, that means it's not valid. These aren't real partners, whatever it is. And then you have radical monogamy, which in essence is you've put in the introspection, you've put in the work. And if you um, still believe, you know, without any undue influence from society telling you that monogamy is the highest on the totem pole here, you would still be monogamous. So it's like, this is what's good for me because it's good for me. It's not, this is what's good for me because society told me that this is what I should be doing. And as long as you make that distinction when you're monogamous, being like, no, I think this is right for me and this is what I want. And I would be doing this even if monogamy wasn't uh, prioritized, even if they didn't say monogamy is the only thing that's valid, this is still what works for me, then absolutely you should be monogamous. And that's important for you to do that and to seek that. Uh, Esther Perel, you know, the, she's the relationship kind of a wonderful, yeah. amazing woman. And she has a term which she calls monogamish. I think she calls it monogamish. And you've got to find out like where you sit on that spectrum. Is it 100% or? 
Sorry. So was, Dan Savage coined that term. Did he? Well, yeah. Well, I, I only heard it through her. She she yeah. said it on some interview, and I thought, what a wonderful term! Like that. It's kind of you've got to find out. Does that mean you're a, like for some people that mean you can't even have friends of the opposite gender or the gender which you might be attracted to? For other people, it might be you can have completely. You, you know, you can go have sexual relations. You know, there's, there's various different ways of cutting it up. That was how I understood it. No, monogamish is more so. Uh, more so, you are for the most part monogamous but you might have these little flings once in a while. So like you present and act and live your life as a your monogamous, but like monogamous people, for example, might do something being like, okay, if my husband's on vacation, uh, we're, we're allowed to play together or we're allowed to play with someone else, but or, sorry, if my husband's uh, away for work, we're not gonna talk about it, we're not gonna do it. But if you uh, sleep with someone there and I sleep with someone while you're out of town, that's okay. So in essence, you're, for the most part monogamous, except for these little agreed upon fun uh, ex- extramarital affairs here is more so what monogamous means. Okay, I understood it differently. Okay, a well, great one. But, yeah. but I, can, can, can I ask one more thing on that? I was going to say, so so on the topic, because we were, we're kind of going back, we're, there's there's a type of baboon, isn't it? Or a, or a nape, isn't there? There's these, uh, what are they called? Some type of great ape, which were obviously evolutions of great apes being... Bonobos. Bonobos. Yeah, bonobos. When you, when you read these books that say, oh, our natural predisposition is to be more open to, to, to not be monogamous, people often kind of quote these bonobo apes, which we are some distant cousin of. And you're kind of going, okay, because these, these apes, instead of making war, they make love and they, you know, they all, they use this as a means of kind of... I don't know exactly. Could you talk about this and the kind of ideas behind this? Because I think this is really interesting because as you said, there's, you know, culturally monogamy is more, you know, it's more the standard. It's kind of what most of us are conditioned to believe is the correct form of relationship. Whereas it seems to be changing now. And I'd wonder what are your thoughts on it? You, you work in this industry, you write about it, you're, you know. Yeah. I mean, if you look at the studies and stats, you're seeing more and more people who are, interested in ethical non-monogamy or like engaging in ethical non-monogamy in some form uh it's also we are like the gayest uh or queerest generation we have more and more people identifying as gay bisexual transgender non-binary all these things than ever before and i don't think that's necessarily because there are now more gay people i think it's just more people are comfortable identifying as gay and being open and honest about their attractions to the same gender or multiple genders. So I think we're definitely starting to just see a switch of, you know, real um, openness and authenticity and people being honest about their desires uh, in a way, again, without this undue influence from society to telling you what you're supposed to be. So I think we're honestly going to see more and more queer people, more and more ethically non-monogamous people as time uh, keeps going by. Wow. And is, is that true? There was a stat that we were talking, we were having lunch and we were chatting all about it. And and someone threw out a term and said, well, now it's like statistically one in 10 people identify as being homosexual or queer or whatever the term is. Is that a correct statistic? Um, uh, th- th- There's so many different. I should probably just type it into it, Google. It, yeah, the, the, <laughs> the range is huge. Like you can look at stuff will be like the younger generation will be like a third of them don't identify as straight. Um, and then you look at studies that also will say 5%. So it's in general, we just know the trend is going up for sure. But like the numbers really range like so drastically, depending on which study you're looking at, which is not the most helpful. 
Okay, and what are the correct terms? Because I really don't want to put my foot in it. And I know there's loads of people out there that we need to be more allies to and be much more supportive and not yeah. use the wrong terminology. And the terminology, even me, me and Steve, like, like uh, I, I don't want to say things for anyone listening that I offend them. So like the term queer, is that offensive or is that non-offensive or? It, it's, I mean, queer is a trickier one, but in short, the answer is it's not offensive. Um, unless if you're calling someone, you know, a queer in, in that type of way and gluely, it's a lot of it's the intent, right? If you're saying it with the intent to hurt uh, someone, then it's hurtful, but it has been uh, reclaimed. And the idea in short of it is, uh, you know, it's difficult saying like gay, bisexual, trans, it's just an umbrella term in essence for everyone. So instead, of, so you say the queer community as opposed to the gay, lesbian, bisexual, pansexual, asexual, transgender, non-binary, you know, it's like there's so, it's a, listing all that, it's just, you can kind of say the overarching queer. So it's a very helpful word um, in, in general to use. And that's why people are using that uh, as opposed to other things. And again, it's there's power and reclamation and you're like, okay, this was a word that used to hurt us and made us feel like we were shit because we were, you know, different or weird or strange. And it's like, no, we, we embrace those elements of ourselves and we wear this with pride. I, I wonder, could, would you talk about your experience, uh, Zach? Because I remember I listened to an interview earlier and you spoke about kind of your, your relationship and how you got into this because it's fascinating. Oh my goodness. Uh, how I got into being a sex writer or how I got into all of it. I like, do you still identify as bisexual or what way do you kind of identify? I know. So I identify as bisexual and this is now going to be confusing. I'm bisexual, but I'm also attracted to all genders. Uh, so uh, like some people like, Oh, that's pansexual for me. Pansexual is this new term, new ish term that kind of came out of the idea that bisexual perpetuates a binary so it'd be like oh bisexual means you only like men and women and i'm like no that's not what it means like that's clearly not what the intent was for it but so i'm bisexual i'm attracted to all genders so some people call me pansexual some people will call me queer both work but i identify as a bisexual um and in terms of being a sex writer my journey to it was kind of different uh you know, I, I studied clinical psychology in school. I thought I was going to get a PhD in clinical psychology. So I was working at Harvard Medical Center as a smoking cessation researcher and counselor. So figuring, wow, out, the best way, yeah, figuring out the best way to get people to quit smoking cigarettes. And I was there. I was about to apply for my PhD. I had the GRE and the subject tests and the letters of rec and the essays. And I'm like, I hate academia. These people are cutthroat. They are nasty. They will steal your work. I don't like anyone here. Also, I don't want to start my career 15 years from now. It's six years of a PhD, three years of a postdoc. Then you're working at the bottom of a lab. And I'm like, I don't want to start my life when I'm 40. Uh, my career when I'm 40, I'm not going to do this. So I was at work. And in essence, like, I just kind of started writing because I was bored at work. And then I got some things published. And the first piece I ever got published was for ExoJane, uh, which no longer exists. But they had this vertical called It Happened to Me. And in essence, what they wanted was like the most wildest, wildest outlandish personal stories. And they'd give you like $50 for sharing your soul, which is wildly inappropriate. I don't think they ever paid me. Um, but like the articles would be like, I got an abortion and used the fetus in a ritual sacrifice to kill my husband, like something like over the top ridiculous. And you're like, what the fuck? 
But anyway, so like I wrote a piece for them, which is I came out as bisexual and now can't date anyone gay or straight. And I wrote about how difficult it was for me to embrace being bisexual. I didn't think it was a um, real identity because every man I knew who came out as bi came out as gay shortly after. So I'm like, I can't be the only guy that's actually bi. But so that like, kind oh, of society to society in a way almost saw it as a stopgap that it was a transition. It wasn't a fixed, this is who I am. Exactly. Cause that's just what I'd heard from other people. And so many people used it in that way. And at the time when I was in, you know, early college, there was no bisexual visibility, like, especially for men. Like they were like, I remember Googling bisexual man. And the only thing that came up were studies about bi men spreading HIV or contracting HIV. I was like, well, uh, this is not fucking helpful for me. Um, so yeah, so I wrote this piece about how difficult it was for me to really embrace that I was bisexual and own this label. And when I did, I thought the, the hard part would be over. Um, I thought I'd be able to date people, people would be open to it. And then when I came in as bi, women would not date me because they were afraid, again, I was using it as a stepping stone and they were afraid that I was actually gay and was going to leave them for a man. And they felt very threatened by the men I had been with or that I would leave them for a man. So I'd get ghosted by women when I'm like, I thought that was a good date. Like what happened? And then gay men would be very condescending and pedantic. And they'd be like, oh, I was bisexual too, honey. You'll get there. And I'm like, no, no, I'm, I'm bisexual. I know this. It has been years of self-discovery and introspection knowing this. Please don't be a fucking dick to me. No, uh, I don't like this either. So like my dating life, I was like, I thought, you know, I'd have double the options of people to date. And then suddenly I had zero options. I was like, wait a minute. Like, what, what's the, this sucks. I have the capacity to be attracted to everyone, but no one's now attracted to me. Um, and then I started dating a bisexual woman and like everything just kind of felt, it was just so much easier and so much nicer. And I felt understood and I felt loved and she felt understood and loved and she understand what I was going through. And I understood what she was going through and it was incredible. And so I wrote this piece about my experience of finding love through dating a bisexual woman. And the piece went viral for in large part because there was no bisexual male visibility things. And if there were, it was very much like 10 things to never say to a bisexual person. It's just like, okay, like that's a bisexual article, an article about bisexuality written for straight people. That doesn't help bi, like bi people know this, like, like bi people are the ones who need help. I, like we don't always need to write these things like telling straight or gay people how to act to bi people. It's like bi people want to support themselves. So the piece went viral. Um, and from that, I started getting a lot of work. Like the, everyone wanted a bisexual male voice. And so I started writing for pride.com. And then from there, I started writing from the advocate and out. And it kind of expanded from there. So initially I was this like the bi guy. And I wrote about that. But also given my like clinical research background, I also like just read, you know, book after book about sex and relationships. I had uh, read the psych books. And so I started transitioning more into just writing about sex, not just for bisexual people, but for queer people. And then from then it was not just queer people, but it was for men. And that's how I ended up writing the column at Men's Health. And then for men, it was women too. So it kind of expanded from there. And because I had the psych background and the research background, I was able to kind of pivot and use all of that um, to become a sex expert. Great story. Wow, I'm sitting back here going, <laughs> I oh, tell us more stories. That. You tell great stories. I love that. Then does that, um, so back to, so we've kind of camped out a little bit in this kind of 
ethical non-monogamy. And I'm wondering for you, who's a bisexual male, and when you said you, you had a relationship with another bisexual woman, like the thought immediately goes to my mind, oh, wow, like, does that kind of mean that you have all sorts of explorative kind of curiosities with other other bisexual people? Or like, what is your what is your take, I guess, is wondering now in your own personal situation about non-ethical non-monogamy or about monogamy or where do you, what are your thoughts on that in your own personal life? Well, my personal, so like when I dated that woman, we were monogamous. We did a year. We were very happy. Neither of us cheated. That was the relationship we had. And it worked very well. Uh, now I'm ethically non-monogamous. I actually have a boyfriend and a girlfriend. Um, and the thing, the thing is, I, I just really want to be careful where it's just like, especially for bisexuality, it's just like not all bisexuals live for threesomes. We're not all slutty. We don't all need a boyfriend and a girlfriend. I just happen to be that stereotype, but I want to make it clear that like most people are not that stereotype. So like, yes, I am extremely slutty. I have a boyfriend and a girlfriend. I have multiple casual partners who I sleep with, whatever it is, once a month. We go out on these dates. It's a ton of fun. People in my life who I consider, you know, really close friends. Um, the idea of being monogamous at this point in my life is pretty comical. I, I think it's very unlikely for that to reemerge, although I'll never say never. And it works for me. You know, I think what it is, and I tell people this with like ethical non-monogamy and monogamy, it's like each comes with its own set of challenges. Um, and it's which one are you better equipped to handle? And for some people, it's like, okay, monogamy, the challenge is, you know, you, this one person's, you know, supposed to give you everything sexually or whatever it is. But if you are satisfied this with, it works. Versus ethical non-monogamy, it's like, it's a lot of partners to juggle. It's a lot of time management. So I want to make sure, you know, dealing with jealousy, it's um, a lot more communication that's necessary. And for me, I'm better equipped and much happier uh, dealing with the problems that come from ethical non-monogamy than the problems that come from monogamy. So it really is to, to each their own. It's almost like a multitasker versus someone who likes to singly focus on one task. You sound like a serious multitasker. I, I am a, I'm a multitasker for sure. I have nine projects and about 15 different thoughts going in my head at any given moment. And how many tabs do you have open on your laptop? Oh my God. Uh, <laughs> okay, this is not bad. This is not bad. I have two browsers, both at eight. So currently, <laughs> well, that's, not, that's not too which bad. Is, that's, that's one that's for your like, boyfriend, one for your girlfriend. You <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. That's not too bad. And you know, I mean, No, that's, that's not bad at all. That's great. That's brilliant. That's really One thing I'd love to explore with you is the topic of sex and health. So we're doing a series on sex and relationships. And something that fascinates me is the relationship between sex and health. It's often kind of a parallel that isn't drawn. And I wonder if you could talk about, you know, the link between finding that joy where sex is seen as self-pleasuring and that it's beneficial to our health because it's often seen, you know, at least in the world I grew up with, sex is seen as just something to kind of let off steam and it's not necessarily associated with something that relates to our health. I think we're starting to see the switch and recognizing that sexual health isn't just about pleasure. It's not about hedonism. Pleasure is definitely a part of it, but it's your mental health. Really, like if you have a happy, healthy sex life, it means you have a happy, healthy relationship with your partner, with your wife, with your girlfriend. You're going to be more productive at work. You're going to like work better. You're going to be re less resentful. You're going to be less depressed, less unhappy. Like sex influences every aspect of your life in some degree. And so it's important to have a healthy sex life. That makes you healthier. That makes you happier. It makes your relationships better. So I think we're seeing this push, especially in like a lot of like women's mags. So like Cosmo, Glamour, 17, Bustle, Refinery29, all that stuff. 
like you'll notice that like sex is often filtered under like mental health or health because it really is so fundamental and crucial to your mental health. And I think that's such an important switch we're starting to see um, how how important sex is in your everyday life and why it's necessary for your overall well-being to be open and honest and communicative uh, about sex. And how do we bring it more like, because like we've been on this, this is the fifth or sixth episode in this series and, and I'm learning so much personally, I really am, about how we can move the common narrative to be much more sex positive. And I kind of wonder that like, you know, there's, there's typically, certainly growing up in a small little town in Ireland, like it was a sex negative culture. There was, you know, it was, it was. Wait, was wait, where like, in Ireland are you from? Galway or Cork? No, just, just south of Dublin. It's Greystone, small little town. But it was okay. like, it, like, you know, at that stage, it was very, there was religion kind of, you know, there was the religious Christianity, Catholic, those kind of undertones. So, you know, if you masturbated, you were going to go blind, you know, don't do too much of that. You know, there was all these kind of subtle cues that were, they were pervasive in our society. And I wonder if for anyone listening who grew up in that kind of culture where it was more, there was shame and it wasn't open, it wasn't talked about, like, how can we become more sex positive and more like where where there isn't a scarcity around sex. Because I think if there was if there was an abundance where people didn't feel that scarcity mindset, there might be, you know, it, it, people might be healthier and happier. Um, well, first of all, by my book, uh, it's not out just yet. I saw it's out uh, April 2, 2022, isn't it? Oh, no, so that's a different book. Okay. So, oh, he's busy. Go, Zach. So busy. No, so April, April 2022 is the, I literally co-authored the Sex and Relationships book for Men's Health. And actually, and that's a great introductory thing, an uh, introductory book about how to live uh, life, you know, without uh, sexual life, without shame, to be more authentic, how to communicate to your partners and embrace these elements of your life. Um, the news just came out yesterday. I was sitting on it. So my actual memoir manifesto uh, just got, uh, sold. Uh, so that will be a, but that's going to be out in 2023. So there, there's some, wow. well, you'll have me back on right before we can promote it then. Deal. Um, Brilliant. But, uh, no, I, I think a lot of it, like it, it's tough. It's really tough. Like, uh, to do this, it requires a lot of introspection. We're, we're lucky. We live in the day, a day and age of knowledge and information at our fingertips with Google. There are so many good books about this. There's so many good articles about this. And I think a lot of it is, you know, a learning about it, learning you are not alone. I think so much of shame comes from, I'm the only one who has this kink. No one else has this kink. I'm so weird. I'm so depraved. I'm so different. And then when you realize that like, no, literally millions of other people have that crazy weird kink you think is that you have no reason to feel shame for it. Um, you, you learn that when you're not alone and you're part of this just like everyone else, you're able to start embracing yourself a lot more. Um, and I think a lot of it is also becoming more active in sex positive communities. Reddit is great for stuff like this. And it's such a fun, positive community where you can talk to other people who are going through the same things as you and help normalize your beliefs and normalize your behaviors. And when you surround yourself with other people like you, you feel more comfortable um, you know, revealing certain aspects of who you are. And then when you receive this positive feedback from them, you're like, okay, okay, good. Yeah, I can be this. I can be more true to myself. So I think it's a lot of education. It's a lot of finding your community and a lot of introspection and trying to figure out kind of going back to the radical and reflexive monogamy. It's just like, am I doing this because I was told to do this? And this is what's expected of me. And this is the norm. Or am I doing this because this is actually what I want and makes me happy? And I think once you're open to 
all these other ways to love, all these other ways to have sex, all these other ways to communicate, um, you will feel more fulfilled. Your life will be better. And um, it's a win-win for everyone. Everyone, you win, the world wins, your partners win. So, you know, try to put in the work here. Good one. Uh, you strike me as like one of the most sex positive people I've ever talked to. Like you're such a shining light for this. And I wonder, like, did you. you grow up? Did you grow up in an environment that was like where your family, you know, sex was something like that was talked openly that you were, you know, sex ed at home was quite, you know, it was really it was nurtured and encouraged and not shunned upon. And when there was like sex scenes in movies, everyone kind of like people didn't kind of feel a little bit shamed and embarrassed or, or how was it? Um, it's somewhere in between, you know, I, I grew up a uh, Jewish and liberal in the, in the Valley in Los Angeles. Um, so like they weren't necessarily sex negative, but it was, but like, I still had just soaked up from media and everything. So much sexual shame. I remember I watched porn for the first time and like, I cried. I thought I was a terrible person for getting aroused. And like, literally my friend showed it to me and I didn't talk to him for two years. I was in fifth grade and I was like, he is sick. He's perverted. He is deviant. Um, and like, I don't want to be this person. And then you have some eighth grade, you're like horny as fuck all the time. And everyone's jerking off and watching porn. I'm like, okay, well, hold on. Let me, let, let, let me see what's going on here. Let, let me see what's good. <laughs> um, but like, so even though my parents were relatively positive, and I think a lot of it comes from the fact that I was the third son. So it's like the, the first son, you know, they're very strict with sex stuff. Um, you know, if you see a pair of boobs on TV, it's the end of the world, yet you can watch like you know, a serial killer movie at 13 and that's totally fine. Um, but so by the time they get to the third son, they're a lot chiller. Uh, I was actually allowed to have my girlfriend sleep over when I was 17, which is kind of insane because I made this whole argument for it and my, or 16. And my mom was like, if it's fine with her mom, it's fine with me not thinking that her mom would be OK with it. And her mom was like, if they're going to have sex, they're going to have sex. Might as well do it under our roofs instead of in the car and getting busted by policemen. Mom's like, fuck, I agreed to this and now <laughs> I have to do it. Uh, shit. Um, so like, obviously, definitely more sex positive. But like, you know, I had a healthy dose of shame. I was mortified of STIs. My sexual health education was terrible. Like everyone else, it was really just focused on like, if you have sex without a condom, you will either get them pregnant or you will get AIDS and die. And that was like the only thing they taught me. And, you know, where the vast deference tube is like, yeah, that's not fucking helpful in my life at all. Uh, knowing uh, what the labeling these parts of my internal penis. Um, so, yeah, like, I, again, it, it could have been significantly worse for sure. My parents were sex positive, but I still had so much shame. I think a combination of school, media, and everything. You know what I mean? Like your parents are just one factor that goes into, uh, you know, your overall sexual well-being here. Amazing, amazing. Uh, can, can I move? Like, so lots of like we've got kids, um, and lots of other people have kids listening. I'm sure as well. And I wonder, like, you know, for 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 the wanting not to pass on the kind of the negative sexual connotations that we grew up in, and how to encourage, you know, a sex positive culture at home, like. Any suggestions? I'm sure this is not the first time you've asked this question, but for bringing up answered. Uh, asking, sorry, but for for like we've got kids, they're going to be teenagers soon, and they're you know they're going they're going to go through the adolescence, and all the sex hormones are going to start erupting within their bodies. And I'm wondering, like, how would we create an environment at home which is sex positive, and how would we encourage this this curiosity and educate it and the greater sense of inclusion? 
Yeah, I mean, it's having that conversation with your kids, and it's not necessarily delving into everything, but being like, hey, saying, I want you to feel comfortable talking about sex. Sex is completely normal and natural. And uh, um, yeah, so I want to have an open dialogue. I also understand that I'm your dad. I might not be the person you want to go to uh, for this. So here are some resources. Here are some books. Here are some places. Because, you know, even if you're sex positive, you still don't necessarily want to talk to your dad about this stuff. You know what I mean? Like it's still difficult, but I think, you know, having a conversation, letting them know that this is natural and healthy and you might have questions and we're always here to answer your questions. Um, And then always like giving, you know, there are books for kids that are great. There's so many good TV shows like sex education is such a positive, incredible TV show on Netflix. I loved it. I loved it. And, and like, yeah, there is some depictions of sex, but if they're t- like, yes, they're it's like, they're going to watch that or they're going to watch porn with their friends. I think the average person sees porn at the age of like eight or nine or 10 now. So it's like, okay, if they're 13, they've probably seen really fucked up depictions of gangbangs. You can show them sex education. That's better. And even Big Mouth, that show is raunchy and funny and ridiculous. But like that, I, I wish I had these sources and they're just such good funny you know they use humor to kind of cut through the tension with it which is so important i think when reaching anyone but especially when reaching teenagers and kids because you make it seem super serious they're going to be like turned off but if they're laughing and enjoying it they don't even know they're learning that's even better so you know getting them on to these incredible shows that teach sex positivity teach accurate sexual health information and like how to deal with your insecurities and jealousies and talk about pansexuality and bisexuality and open relationships is crucial. So I think a lot of it is, you know, you creating that dialogue, being open with them, but also giving them the proper resources for them to do it on their own. Because if they're learning, you know, abstinence only in school, and it's something where it's like only 15 states require sex education to be medically accurate, which I find, oh, this is the United States, um, which I find insane. Uh, I just don't understand how like you can teach non-medically accurate things in school, but apparently that's allowed in the majority of states in the U.S. So just making sure of the right resources, making sure they know that they can talk to you. Um, I, I think are the kind of the two most uh, fundamental things. Brilliant. Really useful. Very, really? very, very, very good. Uh, can I ask a question here? Yeah, yeah, you're, you're in a flow. Well, I'm having fun. I'm really enjoying this. Back at the very start, we were talking about questions of the main things that you were asked, like as you know, a sex bird and a columnist that writes yeah. about sex and relationships for men's health. And you kind of mentioned a number of things from a male's per- perspective. And you said they were more performance issues, like it was ED, premature ejaculation, and a few other things like this. And when we were driving down here today, Steve said um, that the, you, you had been talking about an Instagram or something, some cream that you put on your penis or something, and it stops, stops makes you last ejac- longer or something. Oh, uh, yeah. Permessin. And that you loved. Yeah, permescent is great. Um, What's it called so for anyone listening? Sorry. Permescent. P-R-O-M-E-S-C-E-N-T. Did I spell that right? I can't. <laughs> yeah, permescent. Um, and, and it's fabulous because um, it's for it's premature ejaculation spray. And they have the patent on it. So a lot of the premature ejaculation sprays on the market work right now, but they just completely numb your dick. So it's just like lidocaine and it's just like, okay, like it, it's effective. <laughs> it's effective, but like, I don't feel this at all. Versus I like promescence, like you still feel it, but it's just, you're a little less sensitive. So you can last longer. So that's why I prefer it to other ones. Uh, just because I still want to enjoy it. I don't want to feel like this is a phantom limb that I can't feel in my body. Like I still want to be able to, be able to feel it as well. And it is such a, um, 
Yeah, helpful tip for people who struggle with premature ejaculation. So I, I very heavily recommend it. It works wonders. Um, and I definitely, you know, I'm inviting someone over who I just need. They got a big juicy butt, and I know I'm going to come quickly. I'm like, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna go to the bathroom, put on a few, a few of these sprays, just to make sure I can last a little bit longer here and not get too excited. Um, so I definitely recommend Promescent. It, it, if you have premature ejaculation, it's just so effective and still feels good. Wow, very, very interesting. And, and on, on those other things, so you had said, you had mentioned those kind of more physical issues, and then you'd mentioned other things as some of the main issues that for men's health, that issues that came up in them. And some of them was jealousy and some of them were other ones. Could you maybe talk a little bit about that? Jealousy, them? I think, is such a it good was one. jealousy in relationships. It's such a human issue that we all struggle with. Can you, yeah, yeah, maybe jealousy is a great one. Let's, let's have a bit of fun with this one. Uh, sure. I think the important thing for jealousy is jealousy in and of itself is not a bad emotion. I think we often like to label emotions. It's just what you're feeling, you know, and it's important that this is information that you're getting from your body. And it doesn't, it's how you respond to your jealousy. So if you're jealous and you lash out at your girlfriend and yell at her and call her a slut or do this stuff, okay, then clearly your jealousy is bad. But if you're just like, I'm jealous that my girlfriend is talking to this dude, why is that? It's it, your body's providing you with more information. So you could be like, I have not felt connected with her recently and I feel like she's going to leave me. And because of that, seeing her with another man triggers this insecurity that I have. Um, you know, I have abandonment issues. So the moment that they speak to someone else, I get jealous and worried that they're going to leave. Whatever it is, it's not necessarily bad. It's not bad to feel jealousy. It's just if you're a dick because you feel jealousy, if you get sad because you feel jealousy. So I think it's important to allow yourself to feel that jealousy and then trying to tackle the root of that jealousy. Where is it coming from? Why do I feel this way? And then when you talk to your partner, whatever it is, hey, I noticed I was feeling jealous when you were with them. And I'm trying to figure out why this is. I think I've been struggling with the fact that, you know, when we go out, uh, you just don't seem to give me any attention and you just start flirting with all the guys. And I don't mind you flirting with guys, but I need you to flirt with me too. I need you to feel, I need to feel like I'm your number one here and that you want to be with me. Uh, and not that I'm this random dude you're going to leave at the bar. So expressing it from that lens, as opposed to being like, why do you flirt with every single guy uh, the moment we head into a bar? What the fuck? Like, so it's, it's literally like taking a deep breath when you feel jealousy, figuring out how to express what it is and looking at the root of it, I think is so important and handling and tackling jealousy. And one final thing, I think people assume that people who are polyamorous are less, um, jealous like inherently and some people are naturally inherently less jealous people but most of us are not like it is a very common human emotion it is something that we work through and it's something that you can work through when you're monogamous too uh do you still struggle with jealousy what do you still struggle with jealousy of course uh significantly less than i used to i i'm very rarely jealous at this point and when i am it's less jealous and more envious. And I think the difference is usually just like my boyfriend's a porn star. He, he, he has sex with the hottest men in the world every single day. And I'm not jealous that he's going to leave me, but I would like to have sex with all these hot men. So I'm envious more so than like uh, jealous. And then, and then I'm literally just like, I remember being in therapy and I go expressing this and my uh, therapist like, that question, do you have a hot sex with a uh, hot men and women? I'm like, yeah, every day of my life. He's like, so uh, what are you talking about? Like, like literally, what, why are you pretending that this is not you as well? 
But no, and when I get jealous, I just express it. Hey, I was a little jealous by this. And I think this is what I was feeling. This is what I need from you. And this is what I'm going to work on. Like, it's, I mean, every, like 99% of relationship problems or sex problems can be solved with communication. You know what I mean? Uh, And it's not sexy. It's not fun. And communication is difficult. And I think this is one thing that I don't express enough in like the sex and relationship advice column where it's like, I'm giving you the advice and the advice I'm giving you is correct. You know, or at least I believe it's correct for the most part, but it's not easy. I understand that what I'm saying is difficult to have this hard conversation with your boy, uh, with your boyfriend or girlfriend or whoever it is, or feeling vulnerable and feeling insecure. Are you wanting to break up with them is difficult conversation because you don't want to hurt them. Like I I don't express that, like what the advice I'm giving you is difficult to do. Otherwise everyone would be communicating well and helpfully all the time. There's a reason that we don't. It's because it is challenging. It's because emotions get involved and because it's difficult to be vulnerable. No one wants to get hurt. So I think that's one thing that's crucial to explain as I'm discussing jealousy, being like, oh, just talk about it rationally, logically, and do introspection. I'm like, I get it. It's hard. It, this is not easy, but this is what you should be doing and putting in the work to do. That's great advice. Really, it's really like is. I think in. like communication is at the root of any relationship, healthy relationships. I think it's so important. And I wonder, like on the topic of jealousy, is the complete juxtaposition like, and maybe this is, I don't know if this is true in bi- non bi- uh, non-ethical, whatever. Sorry, I'm doing my best with the terms. But I, I was Goodbye. wondering, like, so on this series, we've kind of explored that one of the a very important thing in relationships is feeling safe. Safety is really important because we all have these inner ch- children within us that want to feel safe. We want to feel loved. We want to feel seen. And I wonder, like, is that at a juxtaposition or in a contrast to, you know, when you live a non an ethical non-monogamous relationship where you kind of you face jealousy and you've got to deal with it more often like do you find security is still important in your relationships or safety safety sorry safety what like you know is that still an important factor because in many relationships safety feeling safe is super important and maybe that's why monogamy suits that type of person and i wonder like for someone possibly like you that's more into ethical non-monogamy like is safety less important and you're better handled to deal with jealousy or you just work through it safety is the most foundational important thing to be polyamorous um like if you have a partner and you don't feel safe and secure and this partner loves you everything is going to explode or implode immediately um you need to have such a safe and secure relationship with your partner in order to open it up and in order to be polyamorous and if you don't have that that's when you become jealous and insecure. That's when things, uh, feelings get to an all-time high. It is, it is so fundamental to every polyamorous relationship. And it's so necessary. Okay, I, I didn't expect that. No, no I, I didn't think so. That was good. That's nice to hear that because it's yeah. almost at the root of any relationship. One thing Absolutely. I wanna, and it's, uh, I, I didn't expect that from you, you know, out there exploring with everyone. Um, what, one thing that I'd love to talk about is just fetishes and kinks. And I was surprised when I was looking, just doing a tiny little bit of research earlier, that one of the most common fetishes is foot fetishes. And often people find fetishes and, you know, kinks kind of, you know, they're kind of seen as just dark and perversions, weird and perversions and you, we shouldn't explore them. But I think the very nature of the human existence is that we're all individuals. We're all a bit weird, a bit different. And that's what makes it magic. And can you talk about one, having these and two, how we kind of bring them out into the light a little bit in kind of a safe manner where we're 
we explore them and express them. Yeah, I mean, the the majority of people have kinks. Very, you're actually in the minority. You are the weird ones for not having a kink. You're, you know what I mean? Like, no, you're not weird, but you know what I mean? But just like, I just want to normalize how common kinks are. And Justin Laymiller uh, studies kinks and fetishes, and he has a PhD at, and he works at the Kinsey Institute. And he's a great uh, resource for like looking at the actual like prevalence of certain kinks. Um, and he has a bunch of research on it. And when you speak to him, what he'll say is what's so important just for these data and numbers is to show that how truly common this is and how like you might think that like you have a fetish for uh, dirt and, and you can only come when there's like somehow like dirt involved. And it's like, OK, you and thousands of other people have this like like I think it's recognizing that you are really not alone in any weird thing that you are thinking. And what are the more um, common ones? Oh my God. I mean, feet are a huge one. Like obviously like, um, like uh, articles of clothing that like surround the crotch. So whether it's jockstrap, panties, uh, mesh, lace, uh, stockings, stuff like that. Uh, urine is very common. Uh, like cum fetishes are very common. So like fluids in that regard are common. Um, I'm trying to think what else. Uh you know, like a lot of role play is common. Obviously, a lot of like daddy daughter role play is common. Mommy son role play. People have things for uh, breastfeeding. There are people. I'm writing an article on people who have a fart fetish who love being farted on, and and that's something that they enjoy. Obviously, some people have scat fetishes. Some people have blood fetishes. Um, there are puke fetishes that are pretty common. Um, I'm trying to think like what what else. Wow, it's it like really anything is. you can think of is common. You know what I mean? Like, really, it, it's everything here. Um, yeah. And I guess the point here is just to emphasize that kink and these type of things are not perversions. They're just curiosities that are not socially talked about. Yeah. And there, you know, some people, it's finding the person who won't judge you for it. And, you know, and it's always difficult to have these conversations. But that's why, honestly, we live, the Internet's great for this stuff. There's an app called FetLife. Um, which is like a social networking app kind of for kinky people. And you kind of express what it is you want to do and other people have it and you talk and you communicate and you find it from there. Kind of the gay version of that is called Recon. There's also a uh, like dating app called Field, which is specifically for ethically non-monogamous people, but it tends to be very kink friendly. So people will say, hey, I'm kink forward. These are my kinks and interests. If you're interested in doing this stuff, please let me know. Um, and so, you know, you finding the right, initially finding the right apps and finding the right, uh, dating sites and that community can be very helpful. So you don't feel like you're being judged as opposed to you meet a random girl at the bar. You don't know what she's thinking. You don't know if she's sex positive or King positive or how repressed she is. So it's a little bit more challenging or nerve wracking to come out to this person being like, Oh, I really like it when you, uh, you know, when you cut me open and I bleed on whatever the hell it is, you know what I mean? Like, it doesn't matter. So I think, especially in the beginning, it's very helpful to use, you know, these online communities. Well, it really seems like online dating has kind of expedited how you can find someone that you're interested in. Because if you think about it in the old days, like back when we were growing up anyway, we're 42 this year. You go to the pub, you go to the nightclub and you'd have a conversation. You kind of get to know them that way. Whereas nowadays you can search on these social things and I'm into this. Are you into that kink? And you immediately cut through it. And I'm actually, you know, ethically non-monogamous. I'm bum, 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 bum. And straight away, it's like expedited. You're just whoosh, straight there. we in go. There. It's amazing. It's great. Wow. 
It, it didn't dawn on me. Well, it really is. And it's such a, like, even, even sitting here, like having this conversation, there's parts of me that are still like kind of, kind of going, oh, geez, I feel a little strange. I wonder will people judge me for having this conversation? You know, because uh, there is baked into our upbringing, you know, the sex negativity. And it's cultural. It's not really due to our parents. It's that the, we're the product of our environment, which was definitely, you know, a lot of things you're talking about, we certainly never talked about. Like it, it wasn't very common, you know. Yeah. Even of even course, Jane yeah. Lund, Shiv was there saying uh, Shiv's a good friend of ours, and she was kind of saying, "Yeah, it was it was a, like Shiv was kind of saying there was a couple in their sixties, and I was chatting to them and their friends, and I was saying, Are you lads still having sex?'" And they wouldn't answer. And she said, "Geez, that's strange. You know the way it's like going to the toilet. Like, why aren't people talking about this? You know the way, but it's uh, it still yeah. is this stigma and shame, and we don't talk about that type of thing. Yeah, and even even as like like the irony of us, we went to all boys schools, and. Uh, you know, you'd call one another a wanker, like, you know, to masturbate or whatever. You go, you're a wanker. And then you go, no, I'm not. And you're all like these pubescent, like going around with hard-ons all day long. Like, of course, yeah, you're, everyone you're all, was, you're all wankers. You're everyone all was a wanker. But like, everyone's yeah. got, no, I'm not a wanker. God, no. And it was like, and you'd be embarrassed to go, like to talk about it. Like, and you wouldn't actually admit it. You'd all pretend, no, God, no. Whereas I think, you know, it's to put things out in the open and really discuss things and be honest and open about it is so important. And then maybe it becomes more natural and open and, you know, fluid. Uh, final question, Zach. For anyone listening who kind of, you know, is interested in exploring their sexuality, is kind of feeling a little like, I'm not sure where I sit in the spectrum. Any advice for someone like that who's feeling like they're not necessarily in a safe or a kind of sex positive upbringing? How do they? Is it just reach online, start to build a community around? What 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 are some tips? I was like, first off, send me nudes. No, um, let me. <laughs> uh, I, I mean, especially you know, if you live in a place that is not sex positive, whether it's in Ireland or whether you're in the deep south and um, you know, United States. We are like really finding your online community is so crucial and so important at this point because you can have these friends and have these people and you can just start having these conversations with other people so you feel less alone. And of course, ideally, you want to expand that to IRL communities. But if you're in a particular place, if you are young, whatever, you're, you're 15, 16, and you don't quite know and you can't go to bar, whatever it is, um, I think really take advantage of whatever it is, Twitter, Reddit. Instagram, Facebook groups, uh, all these things where you can make these friends and have these communities uh, online so you feel less alone. And it's th that we can start discussing your sexuality and surround yourself with sex positive people. Yeah. Zach, you're wonderful. Genuinely, it's like I'm talking to someone that's just so lit up in this space. For anyone listening that wants to learn more about you, Zach, where can they find more of Zach Zane? Uh, sure. I mean, Twitter and Instagram are always very solid, uh, as long as I don't get kicked off. Right. But it's, so, uh, <laughs> my handles are, uh, Zachary Zane underscore. There's an underscore at the end. So Z-A-C-H-A-R-Y-Z-A-N-E underscore. Um, I also have a digital zine called Voice Slot, which publishes my thoughts um, among first person. And your adventures. Uh, I was reading a bit of it earlier. It was like, it, yeah, Zach. also it's not, it's nonfiction erotica. So like real things that happen to people and it's not just smut for smut's sake. I, I think what I really pride myself in this magazine is it's like, it's always something about how you grew as a person through the sexual experience or it reveals something about society at large. And yes, it is very hot. It is very sexual. You'll love it. But it's just it's beyond just sex for sex sake. So that's called boy slut. If you Google boy slut, it'll be the first thing that comes up. Um, 
and yeah, uh, you know, ping me, shoot me a message. Let's uh, let's be friends. Brilliant. You're great. You really are. Thank you are. so much, Thanks, Zach. Zach. Thanks for chatting with us. Yeah, Thanks for enlightening thank us in so many different ways and for having the yeah, patience. Of course. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. Right. Talk and to if you're you over this way, come hang out. Yes, I'm in, I'm in Ireland in a moment. I've been there like 10 I studied abroad in Dublin. I went to Trinity there. Wow, um, amazing. So I was there for like five months and I definitely need to go back. I still got friends there I talked to. Well, we're literally just south. We're like 20K south We of swim Dublin. in the sea every day. We have a kind of pretty cool life. It might be slightly different to yours, but it's, it's c- cool in its very own different way. to New- your life in New York, but it's a very different kind of cool. I, 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 I love it. I'm sure I'll love it. But yeah, hopefully I'll see you guys soon and uh, take care. You remind, you remind me of, did you ever watch the movie with Bradley Cooper, the singing one with Lady Gaga? It was brilliant. Oh, remind me uh, of him. So I, that's, uh, and he would. Oh, and you were, and he was fabulous in that, and you remind me of him. So there you are. Tell I was me thinking, something. I, I love, I love that, that song. song. Or I was thinking more like your man, that Matthew McConaughey, that kind of that, that like with the hair all down. So they're two good oh compliments there now. So you're doing well. All right, well. all right, all right. Yeah, you'll take that, Zach Zane. <laughs> all right, talk to you soon. Take you, Zach. Cheerio. Bye, bye, bye. Mind bye. yourself. Bye. That was enlightening. Genuinely, I felt like I felt a bit uncomfortable at different times, and which which is a really good sign that it's kind of breaking boundaries and breaking down. Really admire Zach. Really admire his work, and I'm so grateful that he had such patience to explain these terms that many people listen. I'm sure had a similar approach to us. They're curious. They don't want to say the wrong thing, so they often don't say anything. So I think it's really important that we as a society learn to, you know, support. Uh, kind of more diversity, include and just learn more about this. and how to become allies to all these various different groups that, you know, we're all curious. We are all fit somewhere in the spectrum. And I think it's just much more about, you know, accepting, supporting whatever someone's preference is and their sexual choices are. We just need to encourage all this type of behavior. And particularly, I'm very interested in terms of how we can create a sex positive for the next generation as well as ourselves. So I hope you really enjoyed this. And this is, as we said, this is part of our sex and relationship series. So if you haven't checked them out, we've got another number of episodes in that. And we're loving it. It's such a, like, it feels edgy. Like today I felt kind of uncomfortable. I felt like this is, I don't know if I should be talking about this. Imagine mom, like, hope mom doesn't listen to this, you know, but uh, but if you do, if you did make it this far, mom, we love you. Thanks for listening. Thanks, mom. And uh, big shout out to Shawnee and Sarah or Shawnee and Sarah and Shawnee. Uh, for producing this in terms of we've got a Black Friday sale which we mentioned at the start where we're doing all our courses it's all about Zach said the importance of sex and health and our courses are really primed in terms of health because health is the foundation of so much of your well-being we're doing them all on a special 66% off to really try to encourage people to take the, take it into their own control and find the support and the structures to reach their goals so uh, do check that out if and you go to the happypair.ie Thank you for listening. Sending lots of love and wishing you a great week ahead. Bye bye. Bye 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 b